ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. When we feel better, we do better. That simple message is what Feel Better with Tara Styles is all about. We share informative, inspiring, and healing conversations with respected leaders whose work embodies the action of making our world a better place. We also share simple practices based in meditation, tai chi, and gentle yoga that are a relief to breathe along with, whether you have time to stretch out on the ground or you're busy getting ready for your day. Settle in and enjoy learning something new that will surely support your well-being, inspire your creativity, and help you feel a whole lot better. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com. Finland and Sweden are applying to be in NATO. But is NATO now more united against Russian aggression? That's this week on Foreign Policy Playlist. I'm your host, Laura Rosbrow-Tellum. I'm also a podcast producer here at Foreign Policy. And for today's show, we want to share an FP Live about the future of NATO. FP Editor-in-Chief Ravi Agrawal sat down with former NATO Secretary General Anders Fogh Rasmussen. They talk about how to stop the rise of authoritarianism and the future of security in Europe and elsewhere. Here's that conversation. Hello and welcome to FP Live, Foreign Policy Magazine's forum for live journalism. I'm Ravi Agrawal, FP's Editor-in-Chief, and I'm your host for the next 30 minutes. Our guest today is former NATO Secretary General Anders Fogh Rasmussen. These days, he runs the Alliance of Democracies, a nonprofit organization dedicated to advancing democracy and free markets around the globe. We'll bring him on in just a minute. Um, But first, FP Live discussions are where we bring experts and insiders to discuss world affairs. Unlike cable TV, there are no ad breaks, and we get to dive deep into the issues. It's a perk of your FP subscription to get to ask questions, as you know. So please click on the Q&A button on Zoom and write in. Don't forget to tell us your name and which country you're in. We always enjoy involving you in these discussions. Now, in the more than 100 days now since Russia's invasion of Ukraine, NATO, as we know, has transformed. It's more united, better funded, and looking to add Finland and Sweden as member states. Democracies around the world, aside from a few notable exceptions, have come out to support Ukraine in this crisis and have condemned Russia as the aggressor that it is. But on the other hand, autocratic countries are aligning themselves with Russia's Vladimir Putin. Think of Viktor Orban of Hungary or Alexander Lukashenko of Belarus, perhaps less clearly China's leader Xi Jinping. On the day the invasion began, NATO Secretary General Jens Stoltenberg brought his comments to a close by declaring that democracy will always prevail over autocracy. This framework of democracy versus autocracy is increasingly being discussed in the halls of government at summits around the world, but it is also a tricky one because it can isolate certain countries that are technically democracies, but in fact are defined more by gray than by black and white. So we're gonna examine that theme a bit more today. And also of course, NATO's role in Europe, Russia's military capacity, how the war in Ukraine ends and much more. Let's bring in our guest. Anders Fogh Rasmussen has been at the center of European 
and global politics for three decades. He was Secretary General of NATO between 2009 and 2014. Before that, Prime Minister of Denmark, among a host of other top roles in Danish politics today, he's an advocate for democracy and free markets through the group he started, the Alliance of Democracies. Mr. Rasmussen, welcome to FB Live. Thank you very much. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to have you here today. So I thought I'd begin with an issue that is in the news and will be in the news this week. Russian Foreign Minister Sergei Lavrov is expected to visit Turkey this week to discuss, among many other things, unlocking grain exports from Ukraine's Black Sea ports. But there's a larger issue here that's relevant to NATO. President Erdogan has made very clear that he opposes the expansion of NATO. He will likely block Sweden and Finland's bid to join the alliance. And so we have an impasse. How does this end? Well, I think at the end of the day, Finland and Sweden will join uh, NATO. I think uh, Mr. Erdogan uses this as a leverage to solve, in particular, some bilateral issues uh, with the United States. I think basically it's more about the relationship between Turkey and the United States than between Turkey and the two Nordic countries. And so just so we're clear, what needs to happen for Erdogan to change his stance? Well, first of all, I think he needs some declarations from uh, Finland and Sweden and maybe also some steps uh, to stress that the two countries, of course, uh, are against uh, terrorism. Maybe he would also like them to lift the weapons embargo against uh, Turkey. But basically, I think what he wants is um, some concessions uh, from the US when it comes to the F-16, F-35 deal. And of course, it's politically popular for him to be taking the stance right now. Um, just one more question on Turkey. President Erdogan you know, is increasingly uh, authoritarian. He's eroded democratic institutions. Does it weaken NATO to have Turkey as a member? Uh, no, I, I would exclude all speculations on kicking out uh, Turkey, uh, apart from the fact that we don't have a formal mechanism to kick out members uh, of NATO. So it would, from a legal point of view, be a very, very complicated process. But more importantly, strategically, it would be a big mistake. Uh, if we were to isolate Turkey, Turkey would get even more Eastern oriented, uh, more oriented towards uh, Russia. Uh, I think we need uh, Turkey as a bridge uh, between the West and the East, uh, so to speak. We shouldn't forget uh, that uh, Mr. Erdogan is up for elections, uh, presidential elections next year. And his stance right now should also be seen in that context. Uh, uh, the race seems to be extremely close, uh, and he uh, attempts to strengthen his own position uh, by uh, taking a firm stance on the US and the two Nordic countries. Let me ask you just one more question about this new expansion of NATO. When you were Denmark's prime minister, did you ever expect or hope that NATO would expand in this way to include Sweden and Finland? Uh, indeed, I, I did hope it, but I didn't expect it uh, because I know 
about uh, the fundamental thinking in the two uh, countries. Sweden, for instance, has been alliance-free during 200 years. Uh, and Finland has been very, very prudent for obvious reasons not to provoke its neighbor. But obviously, uh, Putin's attack on Ukraine dramatically changed the situation almost overnight from uh, about 15 to 20 percent support of uh, NATO membership in the two populations. It has now risen to, uh, in Finland, almost 80 percent and in Sweden, a huge majority. So Putin has actually achieved exactly the opposite of what he wanted. He has strengthened NATO. He has enlarged NATO. And if I may add a, a, a minor detail in that respect, uh, we had a referendum in, in Denmark uh, recently uh, where a huge majority of 66% uh, of the people voted for uh, Danish fully-fledged participation in the EU security policy. So in all across the board, Putin has really achieved the opposite of what he wanted. Indeed. Um, I want to encourage our viewers from around the world to send in their questions. The Zoom button below is the easiest way to do that. But on that note, uh, Mr. Rasmussen, um, one of our reporters, Amy McKinnon, um, asked me to put this to you. And the question is that, um, there are reports that NATO will be reassessing Russian military power in light of the war. And it's fair to say that Russia has not had its way. At the very least, it's made some serious mistakes um, over the last four months. What do you think the lessons are that NATO planners will draw from what they've seen of Russia's military? I think we have made two miscalculations, at least. Uh, we have overestimated the strength uh, of the Russian uh, military. Despite huge investments uh, in uh, military equipment, uh, reopening of uh, old uh, Soviet bases, etc., etc., um, we have seen a very, very weak uh, Russian uh, military. Uh, it, it remains to be seen why. I think uh, corruption uh, may be one of, of the explanations, but that's one miscalculation. We have too long overestimated the strength of the Russian military, but the other uh, miscalculation is we have underestimated the brutality and the ambitions uh, of uh, President uh, Putin. Are you then saying, uh, Mr. Rasmussen, that there isn't something that Russia's holding back? So there are all these theories that they do have high-tech advanced weaponry that they would have, could have, may still use in the event of this war becoming, you know, more attritional, or if it becomes a conventional war with NATO. Um, are you then saying that they're, they're not holding anything back? This is, this is all they have? Ultimately, of course, they're holding back on using nuclear uh, weapons. Uh, and very often I'm asked the question whether I'm concerned about the nuclear threats uh, from the Russian leadership. Personally, I'm not that concerned because um, Putin knows very well that if he were to use weapons of mass destruction, uh, tactical nuclear weapons, chemical weapons, biological weapons, uh, there would be a determined NATO military response. 
Uh, Biden stated that very clearly after the last uh, NATO uh, summit. He didn't specify where is the red line or how and when would NATO respond, but he made clear there will be a response. Putin knows that and he knows that in that struggle, he will be the loser. That's why I'm not concerned about um, uh, Russian use of, of, of weapons of mass destruction or holding back other types of uh, weapons. So this seems to me then that you're from the school of thought that believes that Putin is still a rational thinker who is gaming out every step of this war uh, in a rational mm -hmm. manner. Uh, indeed, yes. I met uh, Putin several times and I consider him actually well-prepared and a rational thinking person uh, based on the information he receives. I think his miscalculations are due to the fact that he didn't get accurate uh, intelligence. Um, so mm -hmm. that lack of information has led him uh, into his historical or historic mistakes um, uh, that will hurt uh, Russia for generations. That's fascinating. You know, related to this, um, we have the comments from President Macron of France recently, um, and his take was that the West shouldn't humiliate Putin. Humiliate was his word. And he got some criticism for those comments, um, but it's an important debate because if the West is wary of poking Russia um, and it's wary of giving Ukraine the highest level of weapons that it has, uh, do you think that's the right approach on the part of NATO? No, I completely uh, disagree. We cannot save Putin from the humiliation it is when a large country uh, like uh, Russia can only assert its interests by launching an armed attack on a peaceful neighbor that only wants to live uh, in peace and uh, freedom. And um, the cost of face saving uh, for Mr. Putin will be much higher than an outright defeat uh, for the Russian troops uh, in uh, Ukraine. That's why my conclusion is uh, Ukraine must win this war because if Putin succeeds in Ukraine, he won't stop. He will continue to Moldova, Georgia, and eventually also put pressure on the three Baltic states. That's why he uh, the Ukrainians must win and uh, they have the will to fight. It's our duty to give them the means to fight. You're listening to Foreign Policy Playlist. We'll be right back. My name's Kurt Jaimungo. And this is the Theories of Everything podcast. The show where we bring rigor to mathematics, physics, and consciousness. Exploring grand unified theories, as well as free will and God. Even exploring aliens with former CIA Lou Elizondo. Heated debates on metaphysics with Kastrup and Verveke. Imagine you are an organism that spans a galaxy. How does the universe look to you? Type in theories of everything on YouTube, Spotify, iTunes, all platforms. I just want to spend one more beat on this very theme because, you know, a couple of weeks ago in Davos, 
Henry Kissinger uh, made a similar, well, the opposite set of points where he was basically encouraging Ukraine to perhaps consider ceding some territory um, so as to not poke Russia or, or so as to give Putin some form of face-saving off-ramp. Um, a similar comment was made by Graham Allison, the Harvard scholar, on a panel that I was hosting, uh, in which he said, again, as a scholar, as someone who studied nuclear weapons extensively, um, that he is more scared of uh, the fact that, you know, this person could use nukes more so than at any other point in the last four decades. Uh, and you don't seem to share those fears at all. I, I just want to press you a little bit more on that. Why is that the case? Well, uh, if we give in to uh, Putin's nuclear threats, uh, then we will let tyrants rule this world uh, because he is completely ruthless uh, in uh, his um, uh, threats uh, against uh, us. And uh, if, if we're setting the precedent that an aggressor can achieve a territorial gains uh, through a peace deal after pursuing unjustified military action, then this strategy would only encourage uh, other malign actors as well. So we would be sending a a, a completely uh, dangerous uh, signal. Um, so that's why I, I think we should not give in. It's for, it's only for President Zelensky and his government to decide the terms of a peace deal. And I have worked for many years in Ukraine, and after this courageous fight by the Ukrainians, where they have sacrificed a lot in life and treasure, they won't surrender. So as long as you have Russian troops on Ukrainian soil, there will be war and conflict. And our rebuilding of Ukraine uh, will be hampered. So this is why we have to pursue an outright Ukrainian victory over Russia. Okay, thank you for that detailed answer. I also want to just shout out to one of our viewers, Thomas Weiss, uh, who asked exactly this question uh, that I just posed to you. Uh, you know, and it often strikes me, having spoken to some Ukrainian parliamentarians recently, that uh, it's not like there's one sector of Ukraine that is making the argument you're making of going for an absolute victory. It is every segment, civil society, politicians, the president, parliament, journalists, uh, everyone that we have access to. I want to bring in another question as I move us a little bit more towards um, NATO's role um, in, in this whole crisis this year. Um, from Alicia Mazuelos, um, who asks that many scholars have argued that the root cause of Russian aggression materialized in reaction to NATO's expansion. Um, many other thinkers, Tom Friedman among them, have pointed out that part of the reason why we're here today is that America made an ill-informed, superficial decision in backing NATO's expansion in the 1990s and 2000s. So first of all, do you agree with, with that premise? I'm guessing you don't, but I'd like to hear it. Um, and given your answer to that, um, how does that inform the expansion today? Yeah, but uh, really, I, I, I completely disagree. Uh, NATO has not conducted a campaign for enlargement, not at all. 
But what has happened is that former communist dictatorships in East and Central Europe applied for membership of NATO to get security guarantees. And uh, once they fulfilled the necessary criteria, of course, they were invited to join our organization according to the open door policy. So instead of accusing NATO of being the problem, I think people should uh, reflect a bit on why is it that Russia's neighbors time and again want membership of NATO to get security guarantees. It is, of course, uh, because they know the threat uh, from uh, Russia. So there's only one responsible for this aggression, and that is Russia. So let me flip this question then. I think it's fair to ask you, did NATO then make a mistake in not accepting Ukraine earlier? I mean, we know that in the months leading up to the war, NATO officials had been saying, you know, that they they might accept Ukraine. Um, Did they make a mistake in not making it happen? Seen retrospectively, we made the mistake many years ago. Uh, The first mistake was back in 2008 when we had uh, a NATO summit in Bucharest in which we decided that Ukraine and Georgia will become members of NATO, but we couldn't agree on granting them a so-called membership action plan. And um, this split within NATO sent the wrong message uh, to Putin, who attacked Georgia a few months after, namely in August 2008. So I think we made the first mistake back in 2008 in not outlining a clear uh, path forward for Georgia and Ukraine. We also made a mistake uh, in 2014 uh, after the illegal Russian annexation of Crimea into the Russian Federation well, we introduced some sanctions, but it was st- it was mild sanctions. And all that gave Putin the impression that he could almost, without any cost, continue and grab land by force. So we have made many mistakes. We have been too naive for too long. I have to ask you, Mr. Rasmussen, because those two dates you mentioned, 2008, 2014, they sort of bookended your... Uh, term as Secretary General of NATO. Um, I know you're saying NATO made mistakes. Um, Are you also then saying that you could have done more uh, when you were Secretary General? Well, as Secretary General of NATO is in the very difficult position that he must achieve consensus. Um, It's no secret that all the way through, uh, I wanted another approach. Uh, In 2008, I was Prime Minister of Denmark. I was in favor of granting membership action plan to Georgia and Ukraine, but we couldn't achieve consensus within NATO. Um, In 2014, I was in favor of uh, much stronger measures, but we couldn't achieve consensus on that. Um, And of course, I had to, to accept that. But done is done. But I think we should learn uh, lessons from history. Appeasement with dictators does not lead to peace. It leads to war and conflict because they 
only respect the language of power, strength, and unity. Well, um, I'm going to use that opportunity to move this discussion a little bit to um, one of the things I alluded to at the start. So the this wider battle we now have between democracies and autocracies, um, such as it is, such as it has been uh, sort of defined um, by President Biden and many other leaders. Uh, and I know that you are hosting the Copenhagen Democracy Summit uh, later this week, and I'll get to that in a little bit. But on this broader issue, um, I want to ask you whether it is even effective to align democracies against autocracies in this very black and white way. And I say that using Ukraine as the example, because we know that if you look at some of the largest democracies on earth, India, uh, Indonesia, Brazil, uh, there's South Africa, many other countries in South Asia and in Africa have been less than willing to sanction Russia, let alone condemning Russia. Um, if you add up the populations of all of these countries, you're looking at a majority of the world. And this is a majority of the world saying, we don't know if this black and white works for us. We're saying that things are a little bit more gray. So let me ask you then, as someone who advocates for uh, democracies aligning themselves against autocracies, how does that work for the global South? Yeah, first of all, I'm a strong uh, proponent of globalization. I think globalization has really uh, dragged out hundreds of millions of people from poverty, not least in China. China has profited a lot uh, from uh, globalization. I'm a free trader, no doubt. But nevertheless, I think we are now approaching a new world order where you will have two camps, an autocratic camp led by China and a democratic camp led by the United States. I think we have to go through that confrontation before the autocrats realize that constructive cooperation is better than destructive confrontation. You may be right when we're speaking about population, but when it comes to economic power, the free world represents 60% of the global economy. That represents a formidable force if we stand together if we unite, and that would create some respect uh, in Beijing. You're also right, you have a gray zone. Some countries will be a bit um, uneasy of having to choose. India is an excellent example, because India looks upon global affairs through the prism of the struggle with China. That's why they have got weapon deliveries from Russia for many years, but that's also why they're cultivating a security relationship with the United States uh, in the Indo-Pacific uh, region. So I think what we should do is to make participation in the democratic camp so attractive that India and other countries are really, um, uh, will be firmly anchored in the democratic camp to which they belong. For instance, uh, we should, offer them uh, arms deliveries if they cut ties with Russia. But what you're saying then is that the, the soft power attraction to democracy is essentially hard power. So it's 
weapons or it is economic reasons, uh, not just the ideal of democracy. No, it's both. And I think we, we, we shouldn't be too naive. Um, we, we need to raise our voice against the advancing autocracies. Uh, for the 16th or 17th consecutive year, we have seen a decline uh, in um, freedom and democracy across the world. We have to turn the tide. And to achieve that, we actually need what I call an alliance of democracies, um, where we should give each other uh, preferential economic treatment. We should um, uh, much easier um, uh, engage in free trade deals. Uh, we should set the international norms and standards for the use of um, emerging uh, technologies. We should establish credit facilities for uh, private companies that want to uh, review their supply lines away from the autocratic states till more uh, stable democratic nations, etc. Uh, so, um, I think what we need is a more firm group of the world's free societies to counter the advancing autocracies. You know, part of this discussion about the black and white between democracy and autocracy and the gray in the middle, um, I think also relates to how we define democracy. Uh, you know, when Fareed Zakaria wrote his book on the rise of illiberal democracies, there was this notion that after 1989, all these countries around the world that were democratizing, um, for many of them, they defined it as, well, if we have elections and we tick off X, Y, and Z box, we get to be part of the club. We get to you know, uh, use the money that the IMF or the World Bank is, is doling out to us. And in a sense, that there were some countries that gamed what it was to be a democracy. How do you define democracy today in a modern context? Yeah, I think, first of all, we should realize that real uh, true democracy is not only to organize free and fair elections. Of course, that's part of being a democracy, but it's much more than that. You, you have to, so to speak, infuse uh, a democratic culture in each individual. Instead of a top-down approach where you start with elections, you should uh, engage in a bottom-up uh, approach where you uh, strengthen civic society and teach people that democracy is much more than just holding a majority in your parliament. It's also about the protection uh, of uh, the individual, it's protection of uh, minorities, anti-corruption, etc., etc. I think one of the weaknesses of uh, our democracies is our impatience. Uh, we, we, we do not have patience to uh, engage in this bottom-up approach. We expect other nations with other cultures uh, and historic traditions uh, to develop into well-functioning democracies overnight. We should not forget that in our well-functioning democracies, we have spent generations uh, to solidify uh, the democratic institutions and democratic culture. Um, and sometimes so, it can backfire if you if you look at Afghanistan, where you know the West, well, America especially, ended up backing 
uh, not the democratic leaders, but the Taliban. Yeah, and uh, I could make a long speech about all the mistakes uh, we did, uh, we made in uh, in Afghanistan. Uh, but I I'm also aware. think Iraq could uh, serve as an example of mistakes uh, made, not to speak about Libya, etc., etc. So, my my take from all this is firstly a military solution is not the complete solution you can use your military to create a peace but after that you have to follow up by a broad-based civilian um, uh, activity uh, and uh, take your time to develop a well-functioning uh, democracy. Don't expect it to be done from uh, one day to the next. That's good advice indeed. And it leads me uh, nicely to a question I, I meant to bring to you, which was about your summit this week, the, the Copenhagen Democracy Summit. I know you have uh, President Obama uh, due to speak there. There's also the Democracy Perception Index. Um, that your group has uh, put out there last week, aiming to monitor attitudes towards democracies uh, around the world. Uh, give us a preview. What can we expect um, from the summit this week? Yeah, first on the Democracy Perception Index, it's one of the broadest based uh, surveys uh, in, in the world. And according to that, uh, people all over the world are longing for freedom and democracy. I'm not surprised. But I think it is contrary to the ideas of Xi Jinping and Putin, who claim uh, that um, uh, democracy, in our sense of the word, is, is not the best uh, model to fulfill people's wishes. This democracy perception index demonstrates that it is a universal desire for people to get more uh, self-determination. Um, furthermore, and that's also interesting, uh, in Ukraine, uh, you have uh, a much stronger uh, public support for the EU in, than in some EU countries. I, I think it's important uh, right now uh, to highlight that. So at the Copenhagen Democracy Summit, we will be discussing how we can uh, strengthen uh, the democratic forces encountering the advancing uh, autocracies. Of course, we will mainly focus on Ukraine, uh, but we will also touch upon China and uh, Taiwan uh, because you have a Chinese pressure on neighboring Taiwan uh, that may be the next global crisis. Indeed, and we'll have to leave that for uh... Another discussion, I'm afraid, Mr. Rasmussen. Thank you so much for your time. That was really insightful. You're welcome. Thank you very much. That was an FP Live episode. Our thanks to Anders Fo Rasmussen for chatting with FP. That's it for Foreign Policy Playlist. If you like what you heard, you can go ahead and subscribe. And if you want to suggest a great podcast that you think we should be listening to, you can email us at podcasts at foreignpolicy.com. This show is produced by Simone Perez, Maria Jimena Aragon, Rob Sachs, and Rosie Julin. I'm Laura Rosprout-Tellum. Thanks so much for listening. Till next week.
podcast powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. It is a truth universally acknowledged that it is always the right time to read, talk, and think about Pride and Prejudice. But why is it this book that we universally acknowledge? Why has Pride and Prejudice lasted for over two centuries as the most famous romance novel of all time? This season of Hot and Bothered, award-winning journalist Lauren Sandler and me, Vanessa Zoltan, are looking closely at Pride and Prejudice, interviewing experts and trying to figure out what this book has taught generations of readers about love. Listen to Hot and Bothered wherever you get your podcasts. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com. <laughs>